Good afternoon. I'm Erin Allen, and this is The Rundown. Fat phobia is one of the last acceptable kinds of bias. It happens a lot, and people are open about it. Even on anonymous questionnaires, people really hate to admit that they're sexist or racist or ageist. But if you ask people about fat oppression, they will tell you they hate fat people. That's Esther Rothblum, a retired professor of women's studies at San Diego State University, and she spent her career studying anti-fat bias. She was one of the people on WBEZ's daily talk show Reset last month talking about fat phobia. They did a series called Bias Against Bodies on how pervasive anti-fat bias is and how harmful it can be to your health. And I want to clarify, I'm saying the bias itself is harmful, not necessarily the fat especially in the new year when there's so much focus on losing weight, looking thin. These conversations, like the ones they had on Reset, are asking us all to take a pause. Ask ourselves why we think about bodies the way we do. Maybe we need to take a weight-neutral approach. Can we think about exercise based on the fact that it's healthy for all bodies? Maybe detach it and everything else from what size a body is, for your sake, my sake, for everybody's sake. Sarah Stark is a journalist and freelance producer who helped create the Bias Against Body series. And she says she herself was the inspiration for pitching this series. So I am fat. um, And to me, that is a neutral descriptor about my body. And for a lot of my life, I did not hold the belief that fat people, myself included, deserved to take up space. Um, And as I started to understand that, like, I did not have to prove my worth by attempting weight loss and inevitably failing at weight loss, I sort of looked around and realized that part of the reason I had gone so much of my life thinking that I did not deserve to take up space was that all of the messages I was getting from pop culture, from journalism, from writers and creators and activists I cared about was that my body was not a body that deserved to take up space. So... Yeah, pretty simply, this is uh, something that I saw all around me that anti-fatness and fat phobia, as some people call it, I use those words interchangeably, affected every area of my life. And it's one of those things that once you start seeing it and looking for it is truly everywhere (laughs) in the things we watch and read in food commercials. And I think especially with the advent of social media, it's something that is affecting young people more than ever. Yeah. And so, you know, walk me through the the process of like, okay, planning the whole series and kind of getting into that content space with it. Yeah. So I think in all of the reporting that I see about fat phobia issues that affect fat people, you know, the moral panic that we have as a society around fat children, I rarely saw actual fat people centered in those conversations. Mm. So Mm. it sort of felt like a gap in coverage that, you know, fat people really want to be centered in stories about them. And, yeah, that's sort of the project that I embarked on was like I want to talk about where anti-fatness, fat phobia shows up in the world around us. But I want to do that by talking to fat people about their experiences whenever possible. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Representation matters. It sure does. It sure does. And it changes. I think it actually changes 
how we talk about things. Like representation doesn't matter just because people can see themselves in it. That's a huge piece of it. But it also changes the way we talk about things when we include perspectives that are often underrepresented in the work we do. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that distinction. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it is a both and for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get into some of the key takeaways from the series. I know that there was an overarching theme here that Mm -hmm. you wanted to bring forth about race. And I wanted to see if you could talk more about that part. Yeah, I think that fat phobia is fundamentally wrapped up in anti-blackness and racism. Um, A big piece of that is that black women have often led the charge for fat acceptance movements. And those are movements that benefit everyone, that even thin people benefit when we dismantle some of our own anti-fatness because, you know, that helps people who are struggling with disordered eating and all all other kinds of things. I think body positivity is a great example where black women, fat black women, started the body positivity movement. Mm. And a lot of where we see body positivity show up now is in thin white women on Instagram talking about body acceptance. Um, Body acceptance of all kinds is really important, but um, I think that something that was coming up again and again for me and for the people I was talking to for this series, it's not just me, I didn't come up with these ideas on my own, everyone I talked to was like, we have to make sure that we are centering fat black women here. Um, Because if we're not centering fat black women, we're missing a huge piece of this conversation. Mm -hmm. And then another piece of that... um, is, you know, this relationship between fat phobia and anti-blackness really comes from race science. So I actually want to let Mikey Mercedes, who we talked to for our last segment about healthcare, speak on that for a second. The earliest scientists doing race science designated black people as the most inferior race of people by talking about the pleasure-seeking nature of Africans as well as the fatness of their bodies. So what we're talking about here is eugenics, basically. When white so-called race scientists were trying to distinguish between races and come up with distinguishing factors that, you know, definitively proved that white people were in all ways a superior race, they really latched on to the fact that African women had bodies that by the beauty standards at the time were desirable and were beautiful. And so fat phobia was in some ways, and this is an oversimplification of, you know, decades and hundreds of years of history that Sabrina Strings talks about a lot in her book, Fearing the Black Body, which is the racial origins of fat phobia. Yeah, fat phobia was basically used to reason away racism and then slavery, the slave trade. So there is sort of a centuries-long relationship between fat phobia and anti-blackness that Mikey also goes on went on to say in our interview with her that we see in healthcare today. That is really resonant. Um, and I remember when I was listening to the conversation with Mikey, it when it came up, I was like, <laughs> oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, it makes sense. You know, mm-hmm. I'm looking back at my family. I'm looking You're like, at, wait a minute. Yes, the conversations <laughs> that I've had, and I'm like, okay, um, yeah. So I think I think I'm glad that we are kind of starting off with that point because um, yeah. I think your intuition is correct. Is that it, it does permeate the entire um, fat phobia conversation. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of research that shows that the health effects of having to deal with your identity being stigmatized, whether Mm -hmm. it's racism, sexism, all the isms, having to deal with those things um, can really affect your Mm -hmm. mind state. Um, Fat phobia is a part of that. 
And a part of the series got into how bias against fat people impacts their health. What came up during that during that part of the series? Yeah. So I think an important an important distinction here is that we are all raised with the belief that there is a direct and a causal relationship between weight and health or between fatness and health, that mm-hmm. fat people are inherently less healthy than thin people. And actually, research has shown again and again and again that there is – that you know, fatness does correlate with or is comorbid with a lot of diseases and chronic illnesses. But that does not mean – that we can draw the conclusion that fatness is causing those diseases. And in fact, as Mikey pointed out, fatness and anti-fatness actually can really contribute to, as you said, poor mental health, which can cause disease itself. We don't actually have evidence that supports that fatness causes disease. We actually really have evidence that says fat people experiencing stigma increases their risk for many diseases. Yeah. <laughs> big, big, yeah. big Con- stuff to deal with. <laughs> Confounding variables. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. So Mikey was on uh, right before another guest who was also talking about health and, and fat phobia mm-hmm. named Yvette Dion. And they got into young people and fat phobia, yeah. uh, which really hit me because as a kid, I was what everyone was calling a chubby a chubby kid, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember I would go to the mall with my mom, and we'd be walking around the mall, and, you know, by the end of the day, my feet were hurting, yeah. right? And it was always a constant problem, so my mom took me to the doctor, and then, you know, she's like, what's going on with her feet? You know, every time we walk around for long periods of time, she's complaining about her feet hurting, and there's a the doctor, mm-hmm. you know? He's like, it's probably because of her weight. She should probably just lose some weight, and then that foot pain will go away. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, <laughs> my mother had the presence of mind to kind of do some critical thinking there. Yeah. And, you know, she's like, you know what? Well, actually, you know, I also sometimes have this problem. My mother um, was not fat, you know, when I was a child. and But we had people of all different sizes in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's like, well, actually, we all also have flat feet. <laughs> and yeah. shoes, you know, shoes are not made for people with flat feet usually. <laughs> no, they're not. No. Right? And and turns out that was what was mm. causing my foot pain. Mm-hmm. It had nothing to do with my weight as a kid. And it just really kind of hit home for me about how doctors and medical professionals can really be overlooking things um, sometimes because of what they see right in front of them. Yeah. Some parents are not as tapped in as my mom was. And there's been some recent developments when it comes to parents with children in larger bodies, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, So the American Academy of Pediatrics, the AAP, recently updated its guidance on childhood obesity. And as a side note, I tend not to use the word obese as an adjective, but obesity in medicine is kind of hard to avoid as a word because it is just everywhere and there's not a great synonym for it. So the AAP updates their guidance on childhood obesity from what they used to call a watch and wait approach. So basically, let's see if this fat child you know, develops into a fat adult and address their weight then, um, to now really encouraging pediatricians to take a very aggressive approach to weight in childhood. So these new guidelines suggest uh, weight loss medications like Wegovy or Ozempic, which is actually a diabetes medication that has been prescribed off-label pretty frequently, especially recently, for weight loss, um, for kids as young as 12, and then bariatric surgery for kids over 13. Yvette herself was also a fat child and talked a lot about this on 
the show and has a lot of thoughts about how we treat fat kids and how fat kids in particular are targeted by society. I think children have to endure so much already to, on top of that, surveil their bodies and the size of their bodies and aggressively intervene as their bodies are growing. That should stop. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think a sort of side note that is worth adding here is that bariatric surgery is a pretty complicated surgery that affects the rest of your life <laughs> after you have it. Um, the suicide rates in people with bariatric surgery are higher than the general population. You know, your body can struggle to absorb nutrients for the rest of your life. And weight loss medications can have really drastic side effects. And the other thing about weight loss medications is that as soon as you stop taking them, almost invariably, you gain all the weight back. So all of this is assuming that fat children, that there's something inherently wrong with fat children and their bodies, and that rather than changing the stigma around them and the circumstances in under which they are raised in a world that targets their bodies, we should actually be forcing them to change their bodies and encouraging them to change their bodies. And I don't know. I think I, if I had been offered weight loss treatment as a child, I think I absolutely would have taken it. I kind, I kind of know that about myself. I think that I just would have. And I, um, I know with all the information I have as an adult that that is not a route that I want to pursue. And I don't know. I think that is a really tricky and harmful dialogue to wrap kids and their bodies up in. Yeah, it's really scary. I think. What's interesting and something that else that came through in the series is that people are so afraid of um, people being fat. I mean, fat phobia. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of it is like, oh, you know, I mean, I was told as a child, too, like this is dangerous. Right. Something bad mm-hmm. is going to happen if you continue with your weight. You're going way. to die because of the size of your body. Yeah. Which just isn't true. Study after study has shown that staying the same weight, staying at a quote unquote higher weight is actually much healthier for you than you know, constantly yo-yoing is what a lot of people call it. So losing weight and gaining weight, which Mm. is the sort of constant cycle that we face when we engage in intentional weight loss because the weight loss industry would not be profitable if weight loss worked. Weight loss. (laughs) Yeah, let's get into it. Uh, A lot of times at the doctor, on social media, on a commercial, basically everywhere, it's implied that if you diet and if you exercise, you'll definitely lose weight. And on top of that, that diet and exercise are explicitly for the purpose of losing weight, Yeah, which is wild, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Mm -hmm. What are some of the problems with that framing? Yeah. So, I mean, what we know about dieting and about intentional weight loss is that the conservative estimate is that 95% of people who lose weight through dieting, gain it back. And it actually is probably more like between 97 and 99 percent of people who diet to lose weight gain it back over, I think, something like five years. And most people gain it all back and then some. And then so then what sort of is emerging is a double standard that for fat people, that fat people, uh, when it comes to diet and exercise, are expected to prove that they are doing everything they can to lose weight, even if it means sacrificing their health for thinness. And we just don't have that same standard for thin people. We don't have an expectation that thin people are spending all of their time trying to stay thin and that that is what makes them worthy of existing. Yeah, I mean, some people who are who are thin get asked when when they're working out, like, why are you... Yeah. Why are you working? And it's just like, actually... 
physical activity is good for me, you know, regardless of what type of body I'm in. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and what we heard from um, Myrna Valerio, who is a fat runner, she's an ultra marathon runner, is that she often comes across people when she's running on trails who will say, like, keep it up. You're doing great work. I used to look just like you. And look at me now. And she has mm. been an ultra marathon runner for I don't know, over a decade <laughs> and has no desire, like is weight loss is not a part of her fitness journey. And everybody that she comes across, um, not in the fitness spaces she has built for herself, but everybody else that she comes across really assumes that she is there to lose weight mm. rather than to exercise because it's good for her mental health, because it's good for her body and because she has now made it into her brand and her career. I'm going to ask a question that Sasha, yeah. host of Reset, asked Sasha Ann Simons um, which I think is really important here. She asked it during this series. Mm -hmm. What do we have to gain if we approach fitness from what's called a weight neutral mindset, a mindset that is not focused on losing weight? Yeah. I, so I'm actually going to throw to a clip from Louise Green, who is a plus size trainer and the creator of the fitness brand Big Fit Girl. I think she had a really great answer to this. The statistics on long-term weight loss are very low. If you can come from a weight neutral position, you're actually putting people into a success model where they can become more regularly active. So basically what Louise is saying is that when we remove weight loss from fitness, mm. we have to gain a lot more people becoming active because the expectation to lose weight is unrealistic. And like she said, is you're setting people up to fail when you say that you should engage in fitness to lose weight. And so a weight neutral fitness model means like you're engaging in fitness practices for yourself, for your health, because it makes you feel good. And that is going to set people up for success. Sarah Stark is a journalist and freelance producer on WBEZ's daily talk show, Reset. I'm going to talk more with Sarah later this week about how fat phobia manifests at the office from hiring to salary negotiations to what kind of chairs get bought. That's on Wednesday, but I'll be back in your ears tomorrow morning with the news. Meanwhile, thank you to Sam Deer and Justin Bull for producing this episode and to Katie O'Connell and Ariel Van Clee for editing the show. I'm Erin Allen, and I'll talk to you in the a.m. 